So we're in a series called Power Trip. And the reason we're calling this Power Trip is because we're talking, we've been talk, going through, through the book of Acts, and they arrive at a city called Ephesus where there's a lot of weird power dynamics. And we've been talking about how, you know, the kind of power that Paul is seeking is not the kind of power that the people in the city are really interested in. The people in the city are interested in, like, power to overthrow people who are in power or power to gather people to start riots or the power to cast out demons, the power, power, the power, you know, all these different types of powers out there. And Paul, what we discovered is, no, the only power I'm interested in seeking is the power to love people, the power to have the courage to accept people, the power to look at somebody who has a totally different view than you and say, hey, you could be my brother, you could be my sister. And so it's a very different type of power that Paul is seeking. And uh, so we made it all the way to Acts chapter 20. And today we're looking at two sections of chapter 20. We're looking at Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 6, and verses 13 through 24. Now, what happened to the verse in between? Last week, we talked about verse 7 through 12. You know, if you were here last week, that was a story about the kid who was listening to a sermon and fell out the window and died. Yeah, that's in the Bible. If you missed it last week, you could check it online. Yeah, woo! Thanks, Spencer, again. <laughs> okay, and the... So every section of Acts, we always start with a question, a question that I think the author, who is Luke, is trying to help us understand. The question today is this, what should we do with our power? Meaning we all have some kind of leverage in life, right? Whether if you're a student, right, maybe you're the smartest kid in class, and so you have some kind of leverage. I could help you with your homework, right? Or maybe you're the most athletic, or you're maybe not the top, but you're somewhere, you're better than most people in your school, right? You're funnier, you're more popular, right? You dress well, or maybe you dress weird, right? Whatever your thing is, right? You, you have a leverage on something. Or maybe if you're in college, or maybe if you're an adult, young adult, you go to work, you're retired, maybe you're well off, you have a lot of money, and you have leverage there, you have power there. Maybe you're high ranking in your company. Maybe you have a lot of wisdom. You have some kind of leverage in your life. Everybody here does, right? Maybe you know somebody who does, and that's your leverage, right? Like, I, I, don't, I don't have any of those things you listed, Cots, but I know someone who does, and I could call in a favor for you. You know, like, everybody has some kind of power. And we've been following the life of a guy named Paul, Paul the Apostle. And Paul, by all means, in the ancient world, it all means he was a privileged person. Like he was a, when he's in his community of Jews, he was called the Jew, Jew of Jews. Like he was a very well-educated person. He could read and write. Most people back then couldn't, right? These people, like he was educated. He had the best tutors. He could read and write different languages, Hebrew, Latin, uh, uh, Greek. And not only that, when he was outside of his Jewish community, he was considered a Roman citizen. That means if somebody were to beat him down, the Roman empire will take that personal and say, if you beat down one of our citizens, you're hurting us. You mess with him, you're messing with us. And so he was well protected. So by all means, and he was rich at one point, not anymore in this story, but he was. So at, in all, he was, you know, if we were to talk about the 1%, he was considered to be one of the highest of the 1% people of that day. So what does Paul do with that influence? And he was also popular, by the way. Wherever he went, people knew who he was. So what does he do with all that influence? What does he do with that leverage? What does he do with all that power? So today we're going to be looking at some boring text. And when I say boring, I don't think the Bible is boring. It's a little boring because 
Well, if you were to read this without really knowing what these places are, it's like Paul went here, Paul went there, Paul traveled there, Paul sailed there, Paul here. You know, like you're like, okay, why did Luke put this in this story? Like, and you know, the part of the reason is because when you and I drive, like if I were to drive from here to Northern California, how exciting is that trip? Like if I were to, t- if I, if like, hey, we have a congregation in front of me, let me just tell you how my trip went. I filled up my car with gas, I stepped on the gas, I drove. Oh wait, we stopped somewhere in Central California. Yeah, we got some gas. Maybe I got to grab some chips, maybe, I don't know. And then got back in the car and I drove. Like, it's not exciting, right? So when we read the story of Paul traveling, we don't really find much excitement in it. But I'm hoping that you understand what it, what it was to travel in those days, 2,000 years ago. So let's start reading this travel log and see what we can learn from this. When the uproar hand ended, and if you remember last time we were in Ephesus, there was a big riot that started, right? And Paul's like, when I go to a city, I want to bring peace. I've been here for three years, and on the third year, if somebody started a riot on my account, I don't think I should be here anymore. So when the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. Macedonia's to the north. I'll show you a map later, okay? Next verse. He traveled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people, and finally arrived in Greece, where he stayed three months. In Greece, he's probably in a city called Corinth. And what's interesting about this place in Corinth is that if you've read through the Bible, or if you're familiar with the Bible, we know a lot of people would say that Paul's greatest work is the book of Romans. This is where he wrote the book of Romans. It's at this point in his journey that he wrote his best-selling letter, which we're reading his letters, which is kind of weird. But okay, let's keep going. Because some Jews had plotted against him just as he was about to sail for Syria, and by Syria we're talking about Jerusalem area, he decided to go back through Macedonia. Okay, so what's happening here? Here's a map so you can know what's happening. He started from a place called Antioch, and he traveled over here to a city called Ephesus. Here he stayed for three years. Three years of teaching and three years of hanging out with people that loves his message. Then on the third year, a big riot started. They're like, uh, when Paul is in this city, our economy doesn't do so well, so let's start a riot and kick him out. And Paul's like, no, no, I'll leave, guys. I don't want any trouble. And so he decided to, next slide, he decided to go north like this to Macedonia's up there. He went to Greece, and this is a place called Corinth. And he stays here for three months or so. And then his plan was to travel all the way down here to Jerusalem by boat. But he found out that the port in Corinth, there were a group of Jews who wanted to kill him. So he's like, okay, maybe not a boat ride. (laughs) Maybe I'll, you know, go a different way. So he decides to go back the way that he came. And again, this is the city in which he wrote the book of Romans. Let's continue the story. He was accompanied by, okay, I'm going to totally butcher some of these names. He was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica. There's more names. (laughs) Gaius, I got that, from Derby, Timothy also, and Tychius and Prophemus from the province of Asia. They're not that popular, famous names in the Bible. That's why I don't know how to pronounce them. These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. So as he's going back, he stops at all the churches that he planted, and he's saying, hey, you're the leader of this church, right? Right, Paul, what do you want me to do? Can you meet me at Troas? Sure, yeah, I'll meet you there, I'll be there soon. And everywhere he stops, he asks the leaders of the church to meet him in a place called Troas. Okay, but 
<clears throat> we sailed from Philippi after the Festival of Unleavened Bread, and five days later joined the others at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. So here's an update of the map. So from Corinth, instead of going by boat, he decides to go north, travel back the way he came, stopping by all these churches to tell everybody, meet me here at Troas. Okay, so this is what's happening. So all these church leaders are here. If you could think of like the Fellowship of the Ring, this is what's going on, guys. Like his posse, his like top of the top leaders, like, guys, I have to, I have to make a big announcement. Can you meet me at Troas? Sure, right? And Troas is where that story we talked about last week takes place, where the kid falls asleep and falls out the window, right? Forever that kid is going to be known for that, which is so sad. <laughs> okay, let's continue the story. We went on ahead to the ship and sailed for Assos, where we were going to take Paul aboard. He had made this arrangement because he was going there on foot. So if you could imagine, there's a, there's a city where, where they're at Troas, and they want to go to Assos, which is about 30 miles south. And there's a two ways to get there. You could take the boat around the shore, or you could walk. And Paul says, why don't you guys take the boat? I want to walk by myself. I have a lot of thinking to do. So at this point in the story, Luke is trying to paint for us this picture of, like, there's something on Paul's mind. Something's bothering him. Like, he's coming to this realization of something. And I'll tell you what that is. He's realizing that these people that he's, he's known for a lot of years now, this might be the last time he sees them. Like, this, like he, he feels that his life is coming to an end. There's so many people who want him dead. Paul's thinking, I don't know how much longer I have. So this might be it. So he's probably writing a speech in his mind, like, I'm probably going to say this to them when I see them at Troas. And now they've been at Troas. He's like, there's more leaders to the south that want to gather, so let's go down to them, and we'll have a meeting there, and I'll give my speech there. Okay, so let's continue. When he met us at Assos, he took <clears throat> we took him aboard and went on to Mytilene. Mytilene, Mytilene, yeah. Then next, the next day, we set sail from there and arrived at Chios. The day after that, we crossed over to Samos, and on the following day, arrived at Miletus. And Miletus is where we're going to be spending most of our time today. Next verse. <clears throat> Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the, the province of Asia, for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. And then, from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. Okay. In case I completely lost you because you don't, you're not familiar with these places, here's the final map I'm going to show you. So from Troas, Paul and his followers, they go down through Assos, right, which is an island, to Miletine, over here to Chios, and then he goes over here to Samos, and then all the way down here to Miletus. Now, if you notice, Ephesus is here, which is the city that he spent three years in, but he goes around it on purpose to Miletus. And once he's here down in Miletus, he sends for people from Ephesus to come down and meet him here. And then Luke tells us the reason why he avoided Ephesus is that he knew that if he went there, he would spend too much time there, or maybe he'll put the church leaders in danger. Whatever the case is, he says, I can't go back to Ephesus. Can you have the people, the leaders from there, come and join us here, down here in Miletus? Okay, and it sounds like he's in a hurry to get somewhere, get to, get to Jerusalem. And we'll talk about that in a second. Okay, when they arrived... He said to them, you know, meaning you've all seen me do this, you know how I lived the whole life, <clears throat> whole time, I'm sorry, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you from the first day I came into the province of Asia. You guys saw how I've been behaving this whole time. You know I'm not here putting on a show. I'm not here to make money off of you, 
right? And the proof of that, next verse, you saw me do this. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. When people face storms, when people are backed into the corner, people's true character starts to get revealed. And he said, you saw me in tears. You saw me getting oppressed. You saw me going through the worst hardships that you could imagine anybody could go through. And you saw me behave around that time. You know the kind of person I am. I'm here because I'm on a mission from God. And it's been hard because I'm a Jew and my Jewish friends have been trying to kill me. And we know what else you know? You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from, the house, from house to house. You saw me talking in public and also in your private homes. The same message, I've not held anything back from you. I told you everything, all, everything that happens behind the scenes. I have not held anything back because I love you guys. And I believe that this message could change our lives. Anything that could benefit you, I told you. Not holding anything back. And I have declared to both Jews and Greeks, it wasn't just to one group of people, I shared it with everybody. I shared with them that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. I told them and I also scolded them. I said, you guys need to change the way you're living. Right now, you guys are separated. Right now, you are looking at the other group, on the people on the other side, and always you have the worst opinions about them. And so I called you guys to repentance because Jesus, what he's trying to do is he's trying to bring the world together, right? And so, look, I held nothing back from you guys. You saw me in the worst case scenario. You saw the way I lived and the things I've been teaching were consistent with this, right? Next verse. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. And my next stop, guys, is a place called Jerusalem. This is where the church started. And I have no idea what's waiting for me there. Well, actually, no, I do know what's waiting for me there. Next verse. He says, I only know that in every city that the Holy Spirit warns me, that prison and hardships are facing me. So, guys, I have to go to Jerusalem. And I have to go there in a hurry. And from every time I prayed or every time somebody prayed for me, I always got the same message. That the worst of my life is ahead of me, waiting for me at Jerusalem. I might end up in prison or I might get killed. I might be oppressed. I might be, you know, I might be tortured. Whatever it is, I know something bad is waiting for me there, but I still got to go. Why, Paul? Can't you just turn the other way? I mean, you're still hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem. You can still turn the, turn the other way and go the other way. I heard there's paradise over in Spain. You could go that way, right? Paul's like, no, I have to. Why? Well, next verse. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. I have been given a task from God. And I have to do this because I'm so convinced that this task, I mean, like my life would have no value if I don't complete this task. I have to do it. Well, what's your task, Paul? He tells us the next verse. The task of testifying to the good news of God's, the key word here, grace. I have to tell everybody, every single person, that they are loved. I have to let everybody know that God loves everyone. Now, you may not care if Joe down the street loves you or not, but the greatest being of all of history, God, the most important one, the one that breathed life into us, God, the author of life, God loves you. 
and I have to tell that to everybody. And not only that, not only do I want to say that to people, right? What I also need to know, uh, to let to people know, is that God's love is not just a message, it's also action. And I need to be an extension of God's hands and feet, letting them know how much God loves them. God loves everyone? Yes. Have you looked at the story of Jesus? God loves Jews. God loves Gentiles. God loves prostitutes. God loves sorcerers. I don't know if you remember the story in, uh, in I think it was Peter's travels. He meets a guy who's a sorcerer, and then he becomes a follower of Jesus because he learns. Yeah. God loves Roman soldiers. God loves slaves. God loves all races. God loves everybody. Okay, And because God loves everybody, I have to go to Jerusalem and be a tangible expression of that love. So the question here is this, why was Paul in such a hurry? Why did he have to go so quickly to Jerusalem? And what was his purpose for going to Jerusalem? I mean, I understand he has to go there and love on people, but how, like, how is he supposed to do that? And, and what prompted this? Well, remember how I said that while he was in Corinth, he wrote a letter, his bestseller, the book of Romans, or the letter to the Romans? In that letter that he wrote, right before he started his journey back, he tells us exactly why he has to go to Jerusalem. So let's take a look at that letter. He says this, Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. I have to go to Jerusalem because I have to serve the people there. I have to be a tangible, love, loving hands and feet to the people there. Well, how are you going to do that, Paul? Next verse. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. People started giving money to Paul, saying, Paul, please give this to the people in Jerusalem. Why? Because at this time, Jerusalem was going through a famine. People were suffering in Jerusalem. And people were like, hey, Paul, are you going back to Jerusalem? Yeah, eventually. He's like, well, can you go there quickly and give this to them? And every city he goes to, every church he stops by, they make a love offering to him. Hey, I heard you're going back to Jerusalem. Can you give this money to them? This might help them. And he's like, this is what I'm called to do. I have to deliver this money to Jerusalem to help the people who are poor, people who are starving, people who are sick. This is what I got to do, right? So Paul was called to be an extension of God's love to the church in Jerusalem. This is the reason why he was like, I know that people are willing to kill me over at Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, remember he said he has to be there by Passover? Passover is when most of the Jews arrive or are hanging out in Jerusalem. He's like, if I go there around Pentecost, I'm sure to be killed. I'm sure people are gonna be waiting there with torches. People are there waiting to, to you know, with clubs and bats, they're gonna be ready to knock me down because they don't like what I'm doing. They thrive on exclusivity. God is ours. And I'm out there telling everybody, God is for everyone, right? When I get there, people are going to want me dead. But I have to go. I have to go. Now, if you've been wondering, man, this is Paul's, what, third missionary trip around the Mediterranean Sea? How much has he actually traveled through this whole thing? Well, scholars estimate that it's about 10,000 to 12,000 miles. Now, on car, that would take a long time. On foot, it might take your entire life. And this is what Paul did. Now, if you're like, yeah, traveling sounds fun, I guess, road trip, you know, uh, let's go <laughs> cross country. Um, it wasn't for fun that people did this back then. They did it out of necessity. And if you want to get an idea of what it felt like to be a traveler back then, scholar Scott McKnight, this is what, how he puts it about this story right here. 
Travel in Paul's day took lots of time and involved in, uh, took lots of time and involved besides endless delays, learning to find provision and places to spend overnight. There have been times where he's homeless and he couldn't sleep at night. And if you're sleeping outside, chances are you will get robbed or you will get beat down. There's a lot of stories in ancient literature about people who went through this. Walkers could cover about 20 miles in a day, and on a good day, boats could cover 100 miles. So you could do the math. 20 miles a day, 10 to 12,000 miles total, right? <clears throat> it is unlikely Paul rode a horse or could afford a chariot. Those are really expensive things, or only afforded to people who are soldiers. So he probably walked. There were measured stops on the Roman roads. Mediterranean weather could be brutally hot while winter, a while winter evenings could be cold. I've never been there, but some of you guys have. Some of you guys show me pictures of your travels in Europe. But I'm sure like the summers are just uncomfortable, unbearable, right? And not only that, you're carrying your stuff with you. So it's probably not fun. Then he says this, we must reckon as well with the intense dangers of shipwrecks and drownings. It was very common for ships to sink back then. So every time Paul's like, I want to save some time by riding a boat, he was risking his life. <clears throat> Plus, Paul seemed to change his travel plans quite often. There's a group of bandits waiting for me there. I'm going to go this way. So a lot of times his plans didn't work out. For those of you people who love to plan things out, like we'll make a stop here, we'll eat lunch there. It's like, no, you couldn't do that back then. You have no idea where you're going to end up that later in that day. Next part. <clears throat> So this is Paul writing about his journey. This is him saying, with my, it's like, with my own words, let me tell you what I experienced in my 10 to 12,000 miles of journey. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. It's like, I've faced death so many times, I've lost count. Next verse. Five times I received from the Jews from the 40 lashes minus one. What is this? In the Jewish mind, they believed that flogging someone was acceptable until they died. So what they do, they, they believe that 40 lashes will kill you. So they did something called 40 lashes minus one. Then they're not responsible for somebody dying. It's like, no, I did 39 lashes. So that's okay, right? And he said he went through this five times. So if you do the math, you know, he's, he's still alive and he went way over 40. But he's like, I went through that in my travels. Next verse. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. Like, this doesn't sound like a fun journey, right? Next verse. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have, constantly, uh, I have been constantly on the move. This is his way of saying, guys, do you know what it feels like not to have a home? I've been on the road so much that there's nowhere that I've been that I felt like I was at home. I don't have my own bed right? I don't have my own private bathroom. I'm always using somebody else's bathroom. I'm always using somebody else's bed. Sometimes I don't even sleep. This is his life now. I have been in danger from rivers. River, people usually travel by rivers because that's where the source of life is. If you get thirsty, there's water there for you. But he says, sometimes the very thing that's supposed to give me life is the thing that put me in danger. I was in danger from bandits, which, like I said, is very common, and in danger from my fellow Jews. These were my people. And now I feel like I can't be with them because they want to kill me. So I turned to the Gentiles. But what happened? In danger from the Gentiles. It's like I have nowhere to go now. I don't know who I could talk to. I don't know. Every time I go into a new city, I'm always wondering, who's going to kill me today? Who's going to try to 
to start a riot on my account. Like, wh- what's going on here, right? And then he says, I'm also in danger in the city, in danger in the country, meaning wherever there is people, I'm in danger. <laughs> in danger at sea. When I'm away from people, I'm still in danger. And in danger from false believers, even the people that I could call my own, sometimes even those people turn against me. They start teaching false things. And then he says, I have labored. I have worked really hard and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. And then he says this, besides everything else, I face daily the pressures of my concern for all the churches. And he puts this last because he says, despite of all the bad stuff, all the crud I just listed on the, on, in the scriptures, all these things that I went through, you know what's always on my mind? the churches, because I love them. This is what's on my mind at the end of the day. I could be in jail, but I'm still thinking about the church. Somebody could be beating me down, and I'm thinking, oh, I hope the churches are okay. I hope they're not experiencing the same pain I'm experiencing right now. So Paul, why, why are you doing this to yourself? Why? Why are you, you know, you don't have to go now you know, you could wait until after Pentecost where there's less people there. Like, maybe you won't re- receive that much backlash if you go when it's not that crowded there. Why are you so compelled to go? And Paul would say, well, because I'm compelled by this one thing I believe. I am privileged. In the ancient world, as a male-dominated world, and I'm a male, I have privilege. I have money. I have education. I have the means to travel. I could read and write. I'm a Jew of the Jews. I'm a Roman citizen. I'm privileged. Now, here's where I think Paul, his fundamental understanding of what we're called to do might be different from a lot of Christians, okay? When you are privileged, a lot of Christians think, whoa, are we okay? (laughs) A lot of Christians think that when you have privilege, your job is to bring the people who are less privileged than you and bring them into your circle and say, Hey, I have a warm meal. You could have some. Hey, I have a bed. Why don't you sleep in my bed? Hey, I have a job opening for you. I'm going to give you an opportunity that most people don't have because I have that leverage in my life. That's not what Paul believes. Paul believes that if you have power, if you have privilege, well, Paul believed that a person with power, leverage, and pri- or privilege entered into the life of those who suffer. Instead of saying, I have the power. Why don't you come and join me where you're safe? His ultimate understanding, his conviction was, no, privileged people, our job is to not invite people into our circle, but our job is to step into their circle, into their context, and say, I'm willing to suffer with you. I'm here to sit with you in your grief. I mean, imagine if somebody has just experienced a loss, and you're not experiencing that, you're you're actually happy. Wouldn't it be messed up to say, hey, sad person, why don't you join into my happy circle and be happy together? No, that's not what Paul does and that's not what Jesus does. He steps in to their context and grieves with them. Jesus, instead of saying, can't wait for you to die so you could join me in heaven. No, 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 what does Jesus do? I'm willing to leave the comforts of heaven and step into this reality and be with you and get stripped naked and die on the cross and suffer with you. What does Paul do with his power? 
he uses it to enter into the sufferings of the people around him, into the sadness of the people around him, into the injustice of those people who are suffering it. So Paul's collecting money and he's traveling 12,000 miles. And by the way, to collect money and to carry with that much wealth is dangerous, right? That's probably why he invited so many people to travel with him at this point, right? And he's living a life without home and he's heading to Jerusalem knowing that he's gonna be killed or put in prison or something bad's gonna happen to him. He knows it's gonna happen. And he says, I'm still gonna go full force and I'm gonna go there quickly because God has given me all these powers, all these leverages, all these privileges in my life. I need to go in that direction. So the question I have for you guys today is this. What do you do with your power? Everybody here has some kind of leverage. What do you do with it? Do you use it to just enjoy life? And there's nothing wrong with it. God gives you good stuff and great great powers and privileges so you can enjoy your life. God wants you to enjoy your life. But that can't become your idol. That can't be your main goal in life. What are you doing with your power? Are you using it to serve the people around you? And once you've thought about what power you actually have, then the the second question is just as important. How can I become God's tangible love? How can I be Jesus to the people around us? Yes, this will probably put you in a very vulnerable situation. You will probably not be comfortable anymore. But this is the life that Paul was called to, and he says, I have to go, guys. I know you guys are all warning me that I'm not supposed to go, but I have to go. And maybe you're not there right now. You know, you're like, no, I, I just got a job. I, or like, I just found a place to live, or I, you know, whatever the case may be. You know, I'm not in a good place right now, and that's okay. That's where you are in your journey. But at this point in Paul's journey, he realized this is what I have to do. I would regret dying if I didn't get to do this for the people in Jerusalem. So what power do you have? What power did God give you? And how can you become a tangible love, a tangible hands and feet for the people that need it? Amen? All right, let's pray.